gracefully enter onto the stage as I almost fall over. Good. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Um, for those of you that were here last week, you saw that we celebrated Peter as he's rolling off the elder board. And see, we proved it. He stayed. For all you that were stressed out, he's still here. Good. Um, but yeah, as they were up, as Peter and Linda were sharing a little bit, it made me realize something. Peter was the chairman of the elder board when I started here and for a long time. And Linda oversees HR and a bunch, like, crazy list of other things. The other day I walked into her office and there was just paper everywhere. And she like looked up at me like, I really don't have time for you, but what do you need? Um, And uh, one of the things I realized with these two is that God has blessed us with people who are great stewards for this church. Like Peter really, as the chairman of the elder board, looked to steward the gifting, our resources, our finance, all those different types of things, right? And Linda does so many things that I would hate to do. Honestly, like, I'm so grateful because, like, our church would be in a terrible place if someone didn't take that burden and take it seriously. So thank you guys. Appreciate you guys. Love you guys. Um, I think there's a lot of things in church uh, that just go unseen, and sometimes I think we need to see them. So with that said, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and so grateful to be able to talk to you guys this morning. Um, I actually get this unique opportunity to speak to you guys, not within a series. Normally when I come up here, we're going through a book or, or we're going through a topical series, but today I get an opportunity to, to talk to you guys in kind of a one-off encouragement. So as I was preparing that, as I was thinking about, okay, what do I want to say um, when, when I have anything I can say means everything, and that's really hard to narrow it down. So I was talking to Pastor Melody, and I was asking her, and we were talking about this a little bit, and she encouraged me with something that I realized is a thing I do every time I preach. She said, we'll start here. Think of our church. Think of our community. Think of our culture. And, and, and think of those things and what they might need. And what I realized is every time that I go to prepare a sermon, I, I take the passage or the topic, whatever I'm given, and then, and then I immediately go to where we are, this church, you people, the faces, the families that are represented here, and the culture we're living in, and a lot of the hard work goes in bridging those two things. So today, in, as I was preparing for this, what I did instead is I simply thought about that and I started reading passages, some ones that were up at the top of the list and going through it, and I landed on this one in Colossians. If you would like to, you can turn there right now. We're gonna be in Colossians 3. We're gonna go from 12 uh, through verse 17. Um, and you can read that now while I'm talking, because it's not important yet what I'm saying. Um, but I'm not gonna go read the whole passage first. I'm just gonna go into the verses and start going through like that. But a little bit of background on this. I was reading and I was thinking about this, and I read through this passage, and there was so much in this passage that for me was resonating. Because there was words in my head like, like unity and community and, and this, um, this idea of our faith isn't stagnant. Like there's so much of the world that feels like Christianity is just stagnant. And I didn't like, I don't like that. Like it didn't feel right to me. And so these themes came up in this passage as I was going through um, this passage. And rightly so, because this passage was written by a guy named Paul. And Paul currently, when he was writing this, well, was in prison in Rome. And Paul had interactions with this church. In the book of Colossians, so the church in Colossae, um, Paul interacted with these people and they were going through some stuff and Paul knew that. And what they were going through is that they were this mixed bag of people. So there was, there was people who were Greek and Roman and then there was a lot of people who were coming from this Jewish heritage and they're trying to start this church and figure it out. And the, the narrative that was being told them 
was that, yeah, yeah, you know, we're not saying Jesus is bad or wrong or anything. He's a really awesome piece to the puzzle. He's really good. He's a really good thing that you should emulate your life. He's a good piece to it. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Jesus is supreme. He isn't a piece. He is everything. And he's doing that not just in a logical knowledge way, but he's doing that in a way a pastor would care about his community. So as I was reading that, as I was thinking about what I would want to say to this community that God has allowed me to speak to every once in a while, there were so many things here resonating. So as I read through this, could I encourage you to do something? Do your best not to seek new knowledge for what I'm saying. There's Google and professors that are way better at that than me. I'm just going to tell you that right now. But receive this as though it was a pastor writing it to you because he loves you and cares about you and wants more for you. Because that's what's happening. That's Paul writing to this church. We're going to start in verse 12. And it said, also this podium is at my height. So thank you, Electra, Justin, whoever did this. Awesome. Because usually when I come up here, it's like this. Because Grant's way taller than me. So many behind the scenes thing that people just love it. Thank you. Anyway, uh, verse 12, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So this starts off right away and it gives us a command. And in the command, it tells us, put on then. And so instantly we get this movement and I wanna draw attention to that because again, our faith is active. See, there's three things that popped into my mind when I thought about our faith and I believe that's what Paul is demonstrating here is that our faith is active, it is unitive, and it's based in community. Now, before you go, like, there's obviously more to our faith than those three things. I get that. But I think this is what Paul's trying to remind his people of, that our faith is these things. So he says, he gives us action right away, but then he pauses and he does this thing. He makes three proclamations about the people whom he's talking to. And I can honestly say, this is why I want you to receive it. These proclamations are true to you as well. So the first thing is that they are chosen by God that God saw them and that he pursued them and he sacrificed for them. And same for you, you were chosen by God. Next word he says is that they're holy. This is the word, as I told you before, is the word for saint. And a lot of you are very uncomfortable with being called a saint, but that is how God sees you. You're one who is set apart for the work of God. And the third one is that you're holy, that you are a saint and that you are beloved. This word comes from the word agapeo, which literally means the unconditional love of God. That's not just what you experience. That's a part of who you are. That's a part of your identity. And he goes on and he wants that to be clear. He wants it to start off. Hey, I'm going to ask you some things. I'm going to point some things out. But I need to have a baseline of understanding that this stuff is real. So he does that and he goes on to this list of virtues and five virtues. And in this list of virtues... Um, it's not an exhaustive list. Honestly, there was, there's lists that are way bigger, have a lot more diversity to them. But when you look at this list, these virtues are specified to a certain thing. And they're virtues that address what community looks like and what's necessary in community. So it starts off like this. It says that we should have compassionate hearts. And how this is written in the original text, it says compassionate hearts and kindness are kind of tied together a little bit. So compassionate hearts and kindness. So compassion, the word compassion is in there, but the other word that's with it is this word called splutnitsomai, which is this really word, it's just a Greek word that means literally bowels. So the reason that that's important is because it was something, when that word was used, what it's saying, what it's telling the reader is that there's something deep 
within the core origins of this person that is flowing out. That's what that means. There's this depth to the compassion because compassion can feel light in our culture sometimes. But compassion that it's talking about here is deep. That's why it says the compassion of our heart. And it literally means that, that what is compassion, right? It is it's empathy and action put together, right? So you see something, you're moved by it, and you're forced to be active and move into it. But he tags on kindness too, that we aren't bestowing this great gift to people that we care about and we serve, right? That we should have a gentle spirit about it. That we should realize it's hard to receive sometimes, and we should do it with kindness. He goes on to say humility, um, before I got on the notes, humility, humility is really interesting because there was a list of virtues prior to Jesus in other religions and other cultures, stuff like that, Greek philosophers, all that. Humility wasn't on any of those lists prior to the ascension of Jesus. Jesus is the one that actually brought in this concept of humility being a virtue. It wasn't part of that context that you think of prior to this. So it says humility and then it says meekness. And meekness, if you know, is an equestrian term, which simply means that a horse that has been broken, right? So, so this wild horse that you can now saddle and bridle and ride. And what meekness portrays is the sense of great power that's under control. Because again, meekness can feel like, ooh, like I'm just gonna back away from this conflict or something like that. No, it's just saying all the power you have, all the ways God's blessed you, have it under control. And the last one is patience. And patience is this thing that's, uh, you know, I think patience is like a win when I have it for like a second. But this is more like long suffering and perseverance as I was reading the definition, which I was like, dang it. I'm just like, my kid does something crazy and I'm like, don't overreact to it. I'm like, yeah, good dad. I had patience right there. I'm awesome. But, but what it really is, is when I'm watching my daughter, who's the most independent person in the world, like she, she has to do everything herself, but she's not quite there yet, right? So we're, we know it's gonna be a minute. She's gotta put her shoes on. They're backwards 90% of the time. But if you switch it, she will freak out. And she's gotta put her pants on. And there's a certain patience that I have, but when we really gotta go, like I'm infuriated, right? I'm like, I could do this in like two seconds and this is taking you way too much time, right? But this word patience, what it means is for the sake of the other person, their growth, their development, them feeling loved, to, to walk beside them in that. To not let it just be a moment, but to let it be a process. So these are the virtues that God speaks of. And before we, um, before we think about this as a checklist of things that you did well or didn't do well, that's not the point of this. The point of this is saying that these are things that you put on. The word that it says here for put on is the same as like the armor of God. But, but when we think in that way, we think of armor as very defensive, right? We put things on so we don't get beat up, right? That's the point of it. But these words are offensive. What these words do when it says put on is what it's saying is it's the assumption that when you go out into your life, when you live your life, when you go into your family, your friends, workplace, wherever you are, that you are pushing light into darkness. And that's the community God's calling us to. It goes on in verse 13 to say, bear with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. What I love is Paul is super practical. He's not just pie in the sky type guy. He said, bear with one another. What this means is you all sitting in this church together, you're kind of hard to deal with. Like, you know, like if, if you're really gonna be in a relationship with each other, that's gonna cause weight on other people, right? That's what you're stepping into. That's the type of community that Paul is seeking, is telling them to seek, is that 
that when you interact with people, it's gonna, that you have to bear with them. It's gonna take effort. But what I hope comes through the rest of this passage is the clear and resounding why it's worth that effort. He goes on to say, bear one another. So at first he tells us who we are, right? Who we are. And then he tells us uh, what we should do. And now what he's telling us is, now what he's telling us is what we should watch out for. Because it says that we, if we have a complaint with someone, we should forgive them. Now, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. None of those things. I'm not saying that. But after working with people for a long time and just being a person for a while, what I realized is that a lot of my poor character traits or the ways that I'm triggered or the things that upset me or I respond poorly in, if I really take it back, are due to some form of a lack of forgiveness. Now, this could be an individual forgiveness that I had a struggle with with an individual. It could be a lack of forgiveness for, for an entity. Let's just be honest, church, right? Church doesn't always do it right. <laughs> There's some pain in here that you guys have that you say, hey, why do I have pain? The church, that's the answer. That's the answer. So there's this pain, this thing, or, or it could be the, a lack of forgiveness you have for yourself. Here's the problem with the lack of forgiveness is that it actually doesn't harm the one who you're not forgiving. It harms you. That when you have a lack of forgiveness in your heart, what happens is it starts to poison relationships. It starts to poison the way you view yourself. But, but as I say that, I instantly feel this tension welling up because a lot of the reason that you're feeling that pain is because someone harmed you. That you were victimized by something that someone did or something did. And I am not asking you to forget that. I'm not asking you to say, hey, it's okay. That's how my son, whenever I do something wrong and, and I apologize for it, he says, it's okay, dad. And what he's trying to say is I forgive you, right? But, but I'm not telling you as a person who's been hurt to say it's okay because it wasn't okay. But what I'm saying is that if there's this lack of forgiveness in your heart, that you are bound by something that a core piece of who you are is being defined by something that was done to you rather than what God has for you. And that's a process. Please don't hear me like it's just accept Jesus. You're fine, you'll forgive everyone. No, that's what this community is about. That takes effort and that takes time. But it emphasizes forgiveness because if we don't have that, we can't move forward with this life that Paul thinks is possible. In verse 14, it says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What I love about this is that we have this list of virtues, and the reality is this list of virtues, if you take them individually in a vacuum, they could sway one way or the other a little bit too much, right? They can become unbalanced. Humility, too much humility leads to anxiety and depression and feeling like a terrible person, right? Humility actually is thinking lower, lowly of yourself, but what that doesn't mean is thinking that you're a terrible person because we kind of struggle, if we're honest, like, well, some of us struggle with that anyway. Like we feel bad about ourselves. What it's saying is if there's a list of priorities, let's not put yourself at the top. And this is counter and this feels uncomfortable. And some of you are even like, wait, because we live in a culture that's about our truth. It's about our progression. It's about, you know, taking care of yourself. And I'm not saying not to take care of yourself. You have to do that. But what I'm saying is there's, there's this sense, there's a life that's of more that you can experience when you look beyond yourself. And that's what Paul is calling these people to do. And none of this works except for the love of Jesus. 
the agape. This is what balances it. This is what brings it all together. We go um, on in verse 15. In verse 15, it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we have these two phrases and it says, um, and let the peace of Christ rule and let the word of Christ dwell. And then it, it ends those things with saying, be thankful, and we'll get to that in a second. But this peace of Christ um, ruling in your heart, this is, there was this phrase, and I say it every once in a while, but there's this phrase that was said, I, don't, I wish I could quote the person. But at one point I heard a speaker say, and he was saying that, um, let the completed, uh, rest in the completed work of Christ in your life. And that so hit me, like it stuck with me, because I realized that's like not a one-time thing. There's times where I feel very rested in that. There's times where I couldn't feel further away from God's completed work in my life, right? Like, but there's this trust, and I think I'll go to my deathbed up and down in that process, hopefully, hopefully leading more and more to resting in the reality that what Christ did was complete. It's not, it's not tangent on, on other things. It's not expecting me to do something else to make it work. It's done. It's completed. It's perfect. And, and there's this rest that you can have and I see this and this need, and, and as a parent, I see this even more, because kids need things, right? Kids need things. One of the things that kids need is approval. And I'm realizing this as a parent, and my oldest son is able to just ask for it. He's like, are you proud of me, Dad, when he does something? I'm like, oh, yeah, like, good job, bud. Um, and, and, but my younger ones, right, Easton, she just does something, and then she'll kind of stand like this, and she'll turn her head and like stick her tongue out. And what that means is praise me. What that means is I just did something awesome, like tell me about it, right? So that's what she's trying to do. And Chase does the same thing. He gives you this kind of look, it's a little more stern, like he's just, are you gonna celebrate me? But, but he's kind of his own hype man. The other day, Lindsay was changing Easton and asked Chase to grab a diaper. So he got it, set it down beside her, and his response was this. He put the diaper down, stepped back, pointed to himself, hero. so maybe he doesn't need my affirmation anymore. Dude's got it. He's his own hype man. He's just like, hero, right? But I see this with, the, with our kids, that they're looking for approval. They're looking for, to their dad for the sense of approval. And what I realized is that this is the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. But my question isn't, hey, God, are you proud of me? My question, if I'm being honest, most of the time is, God, do you still love me? Not because he's doing something counter to that, but because I feel unlovable. And this peace that it talks about ruling is not one that you're answering or thinking the answer to that question is yes. What it's talking about is a lack of a need to even ask. And this is something that, that, that we look to have, this peace of Christ that, that rules in our hearts and, and results in Verse 15, it says, the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you are called in one body. That this is what unites us. It's not same theology or doctrine or way we do church or whether we like our songs before or after. This. None of that is what unites us. What unites us is the accessibility to this peace that comes from Christ and Christ alone. 
And then it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This word of Christ is the, is the word, and I've said this before, logos, right? So this is, what logos is, is this creative word, this redemptive word, it's Jesus. And what it's saying is let that word dwell in you. And it says something that you might teach and admonish one another. And this is really important because the teaching and admonishing is a really important aspect because it's not talking to the religious professionals here. It's talking to the church. And what this, what this brought up to me is that we are responsible to each other. The assumption as we read so far is these things are true as you follow after Christ. Not that you feel like they're true all the time or you're great at these things, but these things are true and because they're true, you have a responsibility to each other. Not because you know things, not because you, you have more knowledge than other people, but because the creative word of God lives within you and you trust that as you interact and admonish and teach one another. And so there's this encouragement that comes from that. And it ends with in thankfulness in your hearts to God. Twice it said, be thankful. And, and I wanna ask you this question. When was the last time you allowed yourself to be truly thankful? And I say allowed yourself because it takes effort. Thankfulness doesn't just, ha- sometimes it happens, but it doesn't just like fall upon you like, oh, I'm so thankful right now. Sometimes but most of the time it takes effort. Now I know, looking out to you guys, some of you are going through some hard times. Some of you have dealt with some difficult things and it might seem like there's really hard to find anything to be thankful for. But I'm gonna pause just for a couple seconds and encourage each of you to think of something that you are truly, deeply thankful for. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's an interaction, maybe it's a group you're a part of, work, maybe it's this church, whatever it is, to think of that and to just grab that in your mind for a second. You see, thankfulness, when we practice it, expands our capacity for all the other things that this passage is talking about. Because we can wake up feeling really beat up by the world. And when we wake up feeling really beat up by the world, like we're in this pit that there's no way to get out of and there's nothing really redemptive about what's going on, that, that we have this mindset, not that we just were a victim of something, that we were victimized by something, but that we're a victim, that this is our plot in life, there's no changing it, there's nothing we can do, that's it. But when we start proclaiming what is good and declaring that, we regain control. You see, because each person in this room has been victimized but it doesn't mean that we have to live as a victim. The the truth of what we're talking about here says that we have life beyond and we have identity beyond and we have worth beyond that which was done to us. And that comes from scripture, that comes from prayer, but just as we heard, most of all, it comes from you guys, from people of God stepping into your life saying, hey, this is truth. The last verse says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, our faith is active. 
It's assuming that there's something done, whether word or deed, whatever you do. Too often the church has been critiqued about this, and there's some truth in critiques, let's be honest. The church has been critiqued in the church being passive or defensive. And think of this individually. A lot of our life, almost we think we need to defend Jesus or defend truth or defend, you know, his good name. God doesn't need that from you. He's done really well through a lot more terrible things than, than what's going on now, right? There was like crusades and stuff. And, you know, people, I don't know, Rome, it was pretty bad times there for Christians for a while. Like, God's good name didn't get sullied during that time. God doesn't need us to be defensive. He's calling us to be active. Because when the church has done that, and this is what the perfect Christian looks like, right? One who wakes up early, because everything good is done early in the morning, right? And you wake up early and you have your time with God and, and you're re- drinking your coffee and you're doing all that. And then you get up and you go to a Bible study and you learn, you know, you're discipled and then systematic theology and apologetics and all these things. And, and all of those things are good before you hear me say that like, those are bad because they're not. All those things are good, but the problem is those things started becoming the goal of the church the ends rather than the means. And we need to get back to what the ends actually is, the goal actually is, because that's resulted in the church saying this, the church saying, especially in a world that's void of this, right, your truth, all that type of stuff, this word of relativity and all that, the church has said, I stand on truth. Here's the problem. If you're standing on truth, you aren't moving. Now, I'm not saying truth isn't important. Again, it's the means by which we move into the world. Because otherwise, you're putting on this armor of all these different things, all the things you learn, and you turn into like, I don't know if you ever had a soda can in summer that had a B in it, and you took a drink, and you almost got, you ever see that? Anyone ever experienced that in summer? Something, right? But this is what's happening. It's like you're this bee in the soda can that's protected from almost everything in the world, right? You're good to go, and that's what's happening. But you're gonna get crunched. You're withstanding a lot of rain, all these different types of things and stuff like that. But there's a truth to this world that if you're not moving in sports, in nature, in war, if you're not moving, you die. God's calling us to utilize these tools he's given us to move forward, to move into those tough, difficult, dark places Trusting that it's not about how much knowledge we've attained, but it's about the living God in us, speaking through us. So we're gonna go into communion in a second. But before I do, I would like to encourage you guys with some, one other thing. There's, there's a lot of reason in this room. One of the things that it said that we are to uh, admonish one another is, is for one, with the Psalms, which I love. We're going in a series on the Psalms, so good, right? That's, that's awesome, good leeway. Uh, but that series on the Psalms, the heart behind that series is that the Psalms are just visceral responses of God's people in the form of prayer, in the form of song, in the form of poetry. You get to see human emotion respond to this tension between the world we live in and what God is calling us to but it says admonish one another in wisdom. Not in knowledge, careful, <laughs> we know so much. But if I look in this room, I know there's a ton of wisdom. 
because there's a lot of you guys that have went through things I'll never experience, that have went through cultural things, uh, economical crises that I am not even old enough to have experienced, multiple wars, difficult family transitions, sicknesses, loss, also success and, and triumphing over things, like these different things that you've experienced, and because of that, you have wisdom. But the world's telling you this, that for some of our older folks in here, our wise folks in here, right, that you guys, if you were to go to some of our young adults and and try to talk to them, the world's like, yeah, they're just like, okay, boomer, like, and not want to talk to you and be like super repulsed by it. And then the same way, the other way that that for, for our younger people, not younger, for all of us, we've created this thing in our culture where what we do is we have our highest virtue is busyness, Right? How you doing? Busy. I've probably said it four times today. I'm not going to lie. This is me confessing to you guys. Um, Busy. Like it's the highest ethic we can have, the highest virtue we can have. But you know what that tells? That tells everyone in this room that unless it's a really big deal, you probably don't want to hear about my life. I probably shouldn't waste your time. And Paul's battling against this. So as we enter in communion, it's gonna be a time where we proclaim what, is, what it is that unites us rather than what separates us. That's what we're gonna do in communion. But I'm gonna encourage you guys with something and feel no guilt, no shame, no bad if you don't do this, especially for my introverts out there. I'm giving you an out right now. But if you heard something today about what this faith looks like, about what a community of believers ought to be from the words of Paul, that something more than you have experienced personally, I would ask you to be dissatisfied with that. I would ask you as we have lunch afterwards, this little time in the courtyard where we hang out, to be bold enough maybe to go to someone that you don't know in this room and just introduce yourself. Say hi. Now for some of you, I need to put this warning. You don't need to admonish them and teach them yet. You're not at that stage. We don't need all the, right? So just hold off on that. But say hi. Maybe share the thing that you thought that you were thankful for. It's a good start. Because I believe God has great things for New Song Church. Amazing things. I know that we don't get there until we work in here with each other too. Because what frees me to feel like I can do what I do, even at a small level, I've told Lindsay this, one of the ways that I feel like I can really sprint and do things that God's calling me to do is because I have Lindsay. Because there's this unquestioned support that I have in my life and it frees me to do things. That happens in the church too. The reason that you can be bold and do something because you go back to this other person in this church and say, I tried this and it was really bad. Can you give me something, right? You have this community. So grab your um, community. If you don't have one of the elements, I believe we have someone walking around. I have not sanctioned someone to do that, so will you raise your hand if you need one? Oh, fuzz, you're the best. Speaking of someone who knows things, you should talk to that guy. He's, he's the smart one in the room. Um, anyway, uh, so if you don't have that, it'll be coming around to you. As we take communion... What we're doing a lot of the times feels individual. And it is individual. We're talking, we're remembering what God does, what God did, and we're proclaiming what he's gonna do. But there's a reason we do this together. 
Because we're not just proclaiming an individual relationship with God. We're proclaiming a connection with his church. Because ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, there was no one individual that represents God. Instead, God said, I can't do this through one person, but I can do it through this collective picture of my church with their individual giftings, individual people in this room that have aspects of the creator written on their life and characteristics of him because we were all created in his image. So Jesus, he sat with his disciples during Passover and he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. A little bit later in the night, in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood poured out for the new covenant. And he took that cup and he said, this is the new covenant for you. Let's take the cup. Lord, I just thank you as I think of what I'm thankful for. I think I'm thankful for this room of people that isn't brought together because of programming or because of structure, because of doctrine or theology or any of those things, but it's brought together because it represents you. I thank you for the lives that are represented in this room, for the people who were created in your image. I pray that you break down walls of apathy, uh, of awkwardness, of indecision between us, Lord, so that we might mutually encourage one another in truth. Lord, we're blessed to even be sitting here. And we're so thankful not only for your word and not only for the fact that you love us and you sought us out, but you blessed us with these people your children that are sitting next to us to walk this journey with us. So we boldly ask for more. We boldly ask that you reveal to us something new in our life that we have yet to experience because of what you've done. We give these things to you in your name, amen.